Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash media. Every little bit counts, and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 12th episode of the show. I want to start this out with an apology about the late delivery of this episode. I recently moved from Austin to San Antonio and have been dealing with some technical difficulties on top of that. So big thanks to everyone who remained patient with me, especially those who continue to support the project on Patreon. Y'all are awesome. There's an important event happening soon called Rojava Strong. It's a two-day affair which will take place in Houston, Texas on Friday, November 22nd and Saturday, November 23rd. On Friday, there will be a benefit show at Darwin's Pub with Kurdish food, tabled literature, a silent auction, live paintings, documentary screenings, live music, and a host of guest speakers. On Saturday, there's going to be a rally, likely in front of the Turkish consulate. The goal is to raise awareness of Rajava and to protest against the recent violence and aggression committed by Turkey. The guest speakers will be talking about 1. The people, culture, and history of Rojava. 2. Democratic confederalism and its commitment to gender equality, participatory democracy, and ecological sustainability. 3. Its imminent threat under invasion, occupation, and genocide. All donations from the event will go directly to Rojava through Hevesor. And there will be tabling signed books and other materials from the Emergency Committee of Rojava to encourage additional donations to the Emergency Committee as well. My guest today is a speaker at this event. Jar Ansel earned a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Houston and an MBA from UC Berkeley. He is a co-founder and board member of the Kurdish American Foundation of Houston and was born and raised in northern Kurdistan where he grew up in a politically active environment that gave him first-hand experience of the evolution of the Kurdish liberation movement. Dr. Hajar, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me over. Of course, let's dive right into this thing if you're down. Sure. I'm sure growing up in northern Kurdistan was interesting to say the least. What was that experience like for you and how has the area evolved since you were young? Uh, that's an interesting and very loaded question. I'll try to answer it as short as possible. Uh, but I think it can be summarized by one word, probably. State. Hmm. When you grow up in northern Kurdistan, you refer to the country you live in, Turkey, as the state. And you see it as a strange element which has its presence around with its institutions and most of the time actually with its military or police institutions. 
that is trying to somehow exert some authority on some people that really don't get along well with it. Mm-hmm. And then it has its own repercussions around it, right? That the, the state entity is unleashing its power, its fear, its anger, whatever you want to call it, quite frequently to almost uh, teach and make the, uh, the dwellers of the region some docile and obedient elements. And, uh, and then you also see some people that are rebelling against it. So it was a mayhem in that. The evolution itself was super interesting in a sense that, like, I was surrounded by a lot of Kurds. Like, Northern Kurdistan is, like, more than 90% ethnically Kurdish. Um, So you just see a lot of people trying to find different ways of actually resisting this state apparatchik or the uh, oppression, however you want to call it. And most of them conclude that this state and the authority is actually not a good thing. And I think it's one of the very rare corners of the world where majority of normal people that are just earning living wage come to conclusion that, well, maybe we can have a non-state entity, maybe some other type of organization that can be an alternative to a state and that can serve our purposes better. What did your personal political evolution look like? Um, so as a kid, I was drawn to naturally to uh, Kurdish liberation movement. And for me, um, all the injustices that I saw around could be explained with my child or a very young man's mind was like, oh, it's maybe just an ethnic conflict, right? Like one, one group is trying to subdue another group. It's some sort of neo-modern colonialism. But as I go through that, I realized that the whole problem was actually the, the oppression structure that had three main elements. A, it was an oppression on women, which was very obvious, and the state was very happy with that. The second one was that whole element of trying to subdue the nature. They were building a lot of dams around and inundating historic sites or creating um, depopulated areas to change the ethnic constitution of the region by building dams. So for me, it was like, okay, so the second element of this oppression is on the nature. And the the third element was against basically the people's will. And in that case, because the region is more than 90% Kurdish, most of the time Kurdish people's will, but it, it could be in any other corner of the world and it will probably be similar type of oppression. So coming to realization of that and embracing a more international understanding of what was going on was really key for me. And when I look back, like I'm really grateful to be introduced to the writings of uh, um, libertarian socialists from around the world, namely like Murray Bookchin or anarcho-syndicalist or somebody like Noam Chomsky, all these really influenced me and showed me that it's what I've been living through was not unique. It's been going on everywhere. And what eventually brought you to Houston, Texas? Oh, it was just uh, education. I was a mechanical engineer and um, I have this scientist side in me as well. And I just wanted to pursue a PhD in mechanical engineering. And uh, the research topic was very interesting and nanotechnology. And I just moved here. So you helped to co-found the Kurdish American Foundation of Houston. Uh, What's that foundation all about and why did you help to start it? So the foundation itself is focusing on, A, uh, preserving the Kurdish culture and making an important color of the American society as Kurdish Americans. 
B, helping the uh, Kurdish community. We have a lot of refugees here that are running away from Syria and Iraq, from the war atrocities. Help them integrate into life here and, and find a new life here. And then C, naturally, raise awareness among the Americans about the similarities of Kurdish struggle with the uh, struggle of freedom that America has endured first during the founding years of the country. And even now, it's an it's a non-ending uh, struggle to uh, have freedom and to have um, dignity for humans. Other than assisting migrants, what other activities has the foundation participated in? I mean, the fundraisers to help people in uh, Rojava and also in, in southern Kurdistan was one thing that we did. I think that really uh, helped our people outside America. But uh, we are a part of a larger alliance here with women organizations, mm-hmm. uh, with multiple progressive organizations in the city. And, um, and we are trying to show our solidarity with them by being at every event. And specifically, we also held uh, quite a few protests, um, um, depending on, like, if you're from Kurdistan, there's always something to protest. So it wasn't very difficult for us to draw people to those events. Well, speaking of events and protests, uh, you'll be speaking at one soon, the Rajava Strong event coming up. What are you going to be speaking about and uh, what do you expect to happen at this event? The event itself uh, has, like, I th- in my mind, is a, the double uh, very important uh, goals. One is naturally raise awareness about the struggle in Rojava and how different it is than what people perceive about it. It has this very important bottom-up organized society that is creating an alternate society that what we call nation-state. And what we offer in Rojava as a model is very different. It's not a nation state. It's actually a communal way of organizing the society uh, in a very uh, municipal way. Uh, So I want to definitely talk about that topic and we want to raise awareness of that. And the second element of the the event will be about fundraiser. Uh, We will ask for help to uh, Kurdish Red Crescent, who was directly helping the refugees and the victims of the Islamofascist violence in Rojava. Rajava includes a multitude of autonomous cantons scattered across the region. How does their governance actually work? Um, so actually the inspiration for that whole model is coming from Murray Bookchin. I'm not sure if anybody else mentioned that before, but the whole idea is basically a, a libertarian municipalism, creating some neighborhood communities, which has their own co-chair people, one woman and one man at each level. And then these people go to a higher body and represent their community. These communities of communities go to a higher body and higher body. So it's like an organized strata. But the beautiful thing is whatever the lower chambers suggest, upper chambers cannot veto. All they can do is to basically discuss that and prioritize it. And another beautiful thing about it is that a woman can veto a man's vote a man cannot veto a woman's vote, which is a direct implementation of the absolute gender equality element of the movement there. And overall, all these communities are organized under a cantonal approach, like you said. Uh, there used to be four cantons under the uh, uh, Rojava administration. Um, but right now, I would say uh, one of them is unfortunately uh, um, invaded by Islamofascist thugs and the three others are under heavy attacks. 
but that didn't really change the governance in the region. Whichever regions are free, um, the most important body is those municipal uh, councils that take the most important decisions for the local populations. Do you have hope that there will eventually be peace in the Middle East? And what role does democratic confederalism play in that? So democratic confederalism in itself has a very progressive element of, like I said, local governance. And even today's ultra-capitalistic approach that is basically imposed on us, telling us, well, going local is not that bad, actually. It's, it's good for people. So that local element, basically, I think is very important, starting from the radical left going to radical right, and it has that element in it. The second element is all the different ethno-religious minority groups and the majority group itself, all the different groups need to live in peace, preserving their own way of being. And I believe this kind of approach requires a revolution in people's mind in the Middle East. Once we come close to that revolution in people's mind across the peoples of the Middle East, then we will be close to that. And until then, I will keep dreaming about it. Can you explain how Rajava specifically prioritizes ecology? So one of the things that uh, a lot of people may not know about is one of the main reasons the Syrian civil war started was the worst seven-year drought. It's almost like a biblical story. From 2004 to 2011, Rojava and Syria overall had the worst drought in the last hundred years. And that created, I mean, that was the direct impact of the global warming on the very like fragile ecologies that we have, especially there in the Levant region, which is Eastern Mediterranean and then the Syrian desert. Um, and Rojava uh, people totally understand that if they want to create a successful governance, they need to preserve the environment that they live in. That's one element. The second element is the oppressive regimes in the Middle East, one of the things that they always use is actually to attack the nature of Kurdistan. 45% of Kurdistan's forests were burned during the last two years. And this is insane. And during the last 20 years, Kurdistan lost more than 90% of its forests. And it has naturally a global warming element, but it also has definitely a human element because all these oppressive regimes are burning everything that they can so that Kurdish people do not have sanctuary. It's kind of like the napalm bombs that were used in Vietnam. So the Kurdish people don't have sanctuary in those mountains. And the second element is they're building all these dams to create little islands, little Kurdish islands in the middle of the whole Asia Minor. They create those little islands and then they depopulate those areas. And then they do ethnic engineering by basically um, settling Islamist and non-Kurdish ethnic elements into those Kurdish areas. So we saw that basically the attack to the Kurdistan's nature is the first step of our ethnic cleansing. So for us, it's not paying a lip service or some sort of elite intellectual practice that makes us feel better about our lives. It's our livelihood. If we want to survive these attacks and exist as Kurdish people, as we have been known last six, seven thousand years in history, we have to do our best to preserve our ecology. So you can see 
um, a lot of small local organizations there. They are setting up multiple little farming areas and the Rojava administration is distributing plots to landless people so that they actually own their own nature and then they what they call regreen the area. I don't know if it's a proper translation in, into English, but that's that's what they are doing there. And they are also creating almost like a kibbutz system in Israel, small communal villages that work together, that toil together, um, and then that that harvest that sow together, harvest together, and share all the uh, revenue that comes from the sale of all the agricultural goods equally among themselves. That's almost like a utopian, futuristic society being implemented there. I'm not saying this happens at every corner, at 100% of the society, but I'm saying that making this happen for each and every single um, Rojavai person is the goal. And I doubt that there's any other country that has this goal of providing small plots of land to its own citizens so that they own their own sort of connection to the land and that they run their own agriculture. I think it's very progressive and futuristic. And um, that shows how committed we are to ecology there. The sustainable housing is another element that people are working on. They're building the houses like it was used to build during the uh, Mesopotamian agricultural revolution that was 8,000 years ago, because that provides you best housing in terms of you don't need AC to uh, to cool it or to, to warm it. and uh, the walls themselves breathe and blah, blah, I can go all into all detail, but it starts with housing and people's, their own agricultural needs goes down to the whole idea of building dams or energy consumption and all that. Um, they definitely uh, in Rojava are changing the mindsets of people, sometimes by moving them 10,000 years ahead, sometimes by moving them 10,000 years behind because 10,000 years behind because some people in the history were doing the right thing compared to what we do now. You touched on it earlier, but I was wondering if you could expand on what women's liberation looks like in Rojava. I mean, so that one, naturally, you see in the all the outlet, media outlets, our uh, girls and, and women uh, with their AK-47s resisting to uh, to survive because they have no other option, right? You have a very uh, cruel enemy, Dash, ISIS, uh, which the entire world is trying to fight, and our women... Uh, are always on TV because they are running this fight because they don't see any other option but to fight. If women fight, that means that really there's no other option because if there's a, any other option for a better future, women will probably total of a better world than fighting, which we men always do. But going to the roots of the women's liberation in Kurdish women, uh, Kurdish society 100 years ago was similar to its neighbors in a sense that women didn't have much rights, but I doubt that even in America and Western world, women had a lot of rights hundred years ago. But what happened was through the oppression years on the Kurdish ethnic minority, one thing became clear. It was the mothers that kept the Kurdish identity, which the oppressors were trying to assimilate Kurds forcefully into other identities such as Arab, Persian, or Turkish. And also, our women realized that the oppression was twofold on them, state oppression and the oppression at the household. So a few very driven leaders embraced this whole idea of women emancipation, and they thought that it will be very important to change our society first within 
before we set try to set up an alternate uh, state or a system to the oppressors. So women start to join en masse the Kurdish liberation movement. So they started to come at the front. And like women always do, if they do something, they do the best. So they became really very important decision makers in the society in a very short amount of time because of the necessity of the liberation movement, because it was some ragtag, I would say, um, resistance against big armies supported by NATO or Soviet Union. Um, and if women didn't join, there was no way that we would have survived and our identity would have survived those many years. So yeah, that became a part of this whole Kurdish liberation movement. And then that even was codified in a sense in every single Kurdish resistance movement that has been founded during the last 25, 30 years that if women are not free, then Kurds are not free. So it almost became our political movement's DNA through time. And I think it's also very interesting that this comes out of Middle East in a sense that when I talk to our my Kurdish um, um, compatriots, women, and ask them, they really have pity for the role of women in Western society. And they think that Western society needs to do much better to actually empower women, such as co-chairwomanship positions that we have at every decision making. We have to have 50% women quota. We have women councils, women municipal councils. Like I told you, only women can veto men. Men cannot veto women. We empowered women a lot and we have seen very amazing results out of it. So uh, I know you asked me how did this happen, but I gave you a very long answer. But I think this is probably the most important pillar of the Kurdish movement and Rojava revolution also. We see a bunch of different states and state-like entities getting involved in the Rojavan area. Uh, everyone from ISIS to Syria to Turkey to the U.S. and even more have all had some level of involvement there. Why, why is this going on? It's So I will say, first of all, historically, the biggest problem that the world has not resolved since the uh, end of like since the end of post-colonialism was the Kurdish question. You're talking about 40 million people living in the Middle East, speaking the same language, sharing the same history, and they are not even recognized as citizens in Syria. They are not recognized as Kurds. They are called mountain Turks in Turkey. And they're called terrorists in Iran. 40 million people. You cannot just close this problem and shut your eyes to it. But the world has been doing that. So when the civil war started in Iraq and Syria, Kurds took advantage of that. And they we came up with our own alternate progressive Western and also social justice inspired and women liberation movement model. So naturally, A, the oppressive powers of the Middle East like to keep Kurdistan as a colony, and they all have their own historic alliances, such as like Turkey is a member of NATO, Assad regime and Iranian regime are uh, in collusion with Russia, and Iraq is just going between this pendulum. And they all use their own historic alliances to crush anything that can give any hope for Kurds for some sort of freedom. That's A. But the most important thing, B, is the model that we offer. Look in the region. Islamist regimes, oppressive regimes, murderous regimes, attacks to nature, women have no rights, like all the bad things you can think of. All the models that they are promising 
They have not worked and they're repeating it. Those are all different forms of fascism. And Kurds come out with this very progressive model, which people of Rojava, northern Syria, no matter what their ethnic affiliation is, Arabs, Turkmen, Circassian, Assyrian, Chaldean, Armenian, everybody embraced this model because it's common sense and it works. And all these other regimes were like, oh my God, if our people embrace that, we will be toppled. That's why they put all their power behind it. And then their international backers became a player in this game. But our model happened to be so strong that they had to pull all the power they have to crush us. Hence, it became almost like a, a little world war going on through the proxies of multiple uh, states or statelets. And one last thing that I want to share with your uh, podcast listeners is a lot of people think that Daesh, ISIS, is uh, just an Islamist organization that is going to extremism. But in reality, it's actually the Sunni Arab supremacist organization that has been using Islam as a great facade to recruit foreign fighters. But in reality, all they want to do is to make sure that the Sunni Arab supremacist rule that has been established by the British and French rule after World War I comes back to power. So that's what a lot of people don't understand. They think that some sort of extremism going on, it's religious. No, it's actually the system that Britain established after the Sykes-Picot agreement, along with France in 1918, where they put the Sunni monarchs in power, even though Sunni Arabs were only less than 15% of that region, on top of the all other ethnic groups and ethno-religious groups. And hence, when people revolted against it, all the great powers were like, oh, we established a good order 100 years ago, 15% ruling 85%. Now those Kurds come up with a model, nobody rules anybody. Everybody rules themselves by a bottom-up society. Well, we kind of probably let them fight in a little sandbox and see what happens. Why did the Turkish military recently attack Rojava and what should we expect as an outcome? I mean, I'll try to, I mean, for this question probably has been answered multiple times on many media outlets also, and I'm not going to say anything new for, for your listeners, but the whole idea is basically uh, just like for Iran, if Kurds get a foothold anywhere, that can be dangerous because there are 12 million Kurds in Iran. Same for Turkey. There are 20 million Kurds in Turkey. And if 2 million Kurds in Syria gain some sort of autonomy or some sort of uh, um, a new region that will give them hope for a better future, well, then 20 million of Kurds in Turkey will probably ask for the same. And that's a nightmarish scenario uh, for Turkey. And so what happened in Turkey, basically, the, the decision makers thought that, well, maybe we can pull all the international support that we have to crush what uh, the Kurdish-led Rojavai revolution has been doing so that the Kurds in Turkey do not hope for equality, for a better life, and for real sense of citizenship in Turkey. Uh, let's just uh, make sure that right south of the border, let's crush what's going on there, so that the ones in the north of the border do not dream a progressive, liberated women, ecological society in Turkey. How does the Rojavan people square their dedication to anti-imperialism while at the same time accepting support from the U.S. government? I think this is very easy to answer. Think, think of the uh, progressive fighters in, in Barcelona against the regime of Franco in 1930s, right, during the Spanish Civil War. 
Did they refuse help from anybody when they were fighting against Hitler and Franco? No, because it's not like Rojavai people have a great basis that they can rely on in terms of defending themselves. And naturally, anybody that wants to fight against ISIS, anybody that wants to help Rojavai people build their own model, they're welcome to help. But it doesn't mean that Rojavai people need to change the model that we are trying to implement to please any power that helps the Rojavai people. Russia helps sometimes Rojavai people. Assad regime, which didn't give citizenship to one and a half million Kurds, which in 2004 in a stadium killed more than 250 Kurds in front of the TV cameras, burned movie theaters full of Kurdish children when they were forced them to watch Ba'ath propaganda videos. This bloody Assad regime is providing support to Kurds against Daesh or against the invasion of the Islamofascist thugs coming from the north. My people say, yes, please help us because we need help. But it doesn't mean that we are going to change what we believe in. doesn't mean that we're going to change the model we want to implement. To what extent is the PKK still a relevant force in Rojava? And has Rojava's interaction with them been a tactical mistake? I would say the the interaction between PKK and Rojava, I'm not an expert on that, but all I can tell is basically it has nothing to do with tactical or like uh, administrative or anything like that. The only connection is the imprisoned leader, the imprisoned ex-leader of PKK, Abdullah Öcalan, He is in prison right now in Turkey, and he learned about Murray Bookchin and his ideology in prison, and he offered his followers to actually embrace the ideology of Murray Bookchin and municipal um, socialism and libertarian socialism. And people that read his books got inspired and they started a movement in Rojava. I don't think that there is such a big connection between what is at with United States designates a terrorist organization, the PKK, and the people of Rojava. Those are two very distinct things. Ideologically, they may have read the same books, same people's names may have appeared here and there, but organically, it's extremely separate. Hence, that's why President Trump is talking to the leader of the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, Muslim Kobani, very freely next to president of Turkey as well because the organic relationship is not there. Some critics have said that the YPG have used colonial tactics in certain areas and have even gone as far as brutally and violently imposing democratic confederalism. Is there any truth to these claims? And what are your thoughts in general about that accusation? Again, there's no reason to be ideologically blind from my side as well, right? I'm sure that there were injustices that had that happen, but Having said that, there's. I'm just going to give you an example. It's not good to start from bottom up. You have to answer these questions top down. But I'm just going to give an example, and I'm going to turn to top down. When the town of Shaddadi was taken over by Syrian Democratic Forces from Daesh, from ISIS, all the women were forced in Burqa. Our girls went into the town with the AK-47s. They liberated the town, and they told the man of the town, in six hours, send all your women to a school building where we're going to set up our municipal council and they're going to choose their co-chairwoman 
which is going to be sitting next to a co-chairman. And during that time, you guys choose a leader as well. And naturally, six hours later, these people who supported Majority Daesh, who had no problem with this Islamo-fascist ideology, they have only experience of six hours with Murray Bookchin's ideology, okay? You cannot expect anything from these people. They didn't send any women. So our girls went door by door with their AK-47s and they said, send your women out. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. Can you blame these girls who use their AK-47s to create a municipal council out of women from men that supported ISIS until six hours ago? There are the realities of the region. Yes, there may be instances where uh, YPG members may have done some wrongdoings. But all I know is that majority Arab towns embraced Syrian democratic forces and majority Arab towns that used to support ISIS, now they are protesting America, that America is getting out and they say, please don't leave us and the Syrian democratic forces here alone. I think the fact that we change their hearts and minds in such a short time is a true tribute that, that, that the right thing has been done more than the wrong. Oshelon insisted that democratic confederalism was a form of stateless organizing. And it seems at some level that's obviously true, but at others, to, to an outsider anyways, it looks like it may take on some authoritarian elements. So do you think that democratic confederalism and specifically the way that Rajava has implemented it is truly stateless? So here's what I will say. Kurdish people have been living without, like for us, state was a foreign element, as I said at the beginning of our talk. And uh, in itself, the way Rojava is organized, the inspiration is a stateless entity where people are organized bottom up. But there is also the realities of war and the realities of the region that we are living in. So that requires some sort of discipline. I've been hearing the same things that you guys have been hearing about, some sort of discipline at the top that sometimes creates the impression that there is not only a bottom up feedback cycle, but there's some sort of also top down. But I think it's probably a part of an early um, revolution that is trying to change people's minds. But the most important thing is what's the North Star? The North Star is a stateless society where people don't care actually which government's flags flying over them. They actually live their own life in their own alternate universe that they create in a bottom up way. And I think that also goes well with the world order that is enshrined by the United Nations, sanctity of the borders and member states, uh, territorial sanctity and all that. So Rojava just wants to say, we have no problems with any of that because we're trying to create an alternate to that. But while creating it, it can have some top-down elements, but I believe if Rojava becomes an internationally recognized system and people embrace it and the war conditions are over, that whole, top-down element that some people are sensing will probably disappear. Some anarchists say that democracy, even when it's direct democracy, as you've described democratic confederalism is, um, is basically the rule of all over all. How would you respond to that? The individualism element, respecting that, but on the other hand, organizing the society in a way that a lot of people have very differing opinions, 
is extremely difficult, especially in societies like, like Rojava. So going in a complete anarchist approach in Rojava would have probably ensured a catastrophic failure and the genocidal conditions for our people. One can criticize why, which I agree actually, democracy is rule of all against all probably, but it's probably the lesser of the evils that Rojavai administrative model had to embrace trying to change people's minds. But if normal conditions are reached and people embraced a more civilized, I will almost say, a way of life, then probably in such society that there's no war, a better form of governance will be possible. And the most important thing is that if a bottom-up organized society feel like respecting individualities more and lessening the democratic element and then empowering the individual's freedom even more will make more sense to them, probably that model should be implemented as well. But it's very hard in these conditions, I think. That is going to lead pretty perfectly into this next question. Um, speaking of individualism, do you think a type of individualist anarchism, I'm thinking of sort of anti-capitalist, sort of mutualist markets, do you think that that could work in Rajava? Or is there something special about the, or specific to the material conditions that makes their style of organizing particularly useful in that area? I would say like that when you look at the communal way of organizing in Rojava, it's actually trying to implement a model where um, individualist anarchism will be possible in some small communities. But there is a need, I don't want to call it a central planning or something, but there is a need for a central defense in the region right now, which requires some sort of connection between different communities, which goes hand in hand with uh, communal decision-making and also some sort of individual decision-making, finding its place next to each other. So it's really a hybrid model that they're trying to implement there. And I think there are important learnings even for individualist anarchists there in a sense that how, how much higher you can take this kind of organization. Like, can you think of 7 billion people living in a world when there's no some sort of central knowledge collection that helps us making some better decisions? Can we ignore that element? Can we go 100% local? Those are all very interesting, um, I would say, um, theoretical questions, but unfortunately we don't have time to answer them because we have a war. Just wanna say, and there's a concept of learning and unlearning. In America or in Western world or most of the world, people learned how bad nation state is. And now people are looking in the models how they can unlearn a centrally moderated way of ruling societies. We Kurds, we never had a state. We never reached the organization level, the oppressive state organization level that any other nation has ever reached. We always lived in some sort of tribal confederalism which had its own family-based decision-making. And that's why we became a colony to others. So now we are trying to learn and unlearn how bad the nation state is in seven years, what Western world learned in 1,000 years. So naturally we're making mistakes, but I think it's very important. Something that sounds really right 
to any other person from the unlearning perspective of how bad central authority is. For a Kurd, central authority is some sort of a learning because she never had it. That's very interesting. On a, on a similar but different note, do you think there's hope for democratic confederalism in the United States or even in Texas? Or in your opinion, would our material conditions require a different set of organization and tactics? I would say naturally there are different peculiarities of America. Like, first of all, like freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of like protesting. The whole governance in America is not as oppressive as what you will see in the Middle East, right? Because the peoples of America resisted and they always dreamt of a better America. In terms of specific learnings, I will say the most important things was three things probably from Rojava. The municipal councils, which is something that progressive people can start implementing immediately in environments where progressives live close to each other. And that creates a whole body, in some sense, like a political body of people that come and discuss topics that are important to them. And then they can show their will in parallel to the top-down organization. They can build their own bottom-up organization. And it's totally constitutional. It's totally legal. It's totally supported in the society. Number two is that whole cantonal approach can be implemented here in a sense that those little communities that are formed all around the nation can be connected with what I was calling that loose knowledge transfer connections. So that way, everybody learns from each other's experiences and they create almost their own little network of uh, bottom-up organized communes. And the, the third element that is very important, I think, in terms of learning Instead of trying to fight the system, try to change it, try to talk how bad the system that surrounds us, try to build something alternative that is good from bottom up and then say, if you fly your flag over here and if you have your cops here and your military here, as long as you don't kill us, we have no problem. We're just setting up our own way of life bottom up. And that's how it started in Rojava in an oppressive regime like Assad, one party regime. Why can't you set that up in America as well? There's definitely those three learnings and also making sure that the women are always 50% in decision making will ensure that A, everything stays peaceful, B, everything stays more calm and reasonable, C, it becomes successful. Okay. Do you consider yourself an anarchist? I do not. I, I think that every single ideology has important learnings that they offer us. And the reason I answered I do not is not because I adhere to another sort of ideology. I just call myself a progressive. There are multiple, like libertarian municipalism of Murray Bookchin is very interesting. A communalist society, uh, not communist again, a communalist, like a libertarian socialist society is very interesting. Anarcho-syndicalism is very interesting and they all have interesting lessons that they are teaching us. But at core, I myself, I, I consider myself as somebody that believes in, in, in freedom and equality and social justice. Where should folks go or what do you think folks should do if they want to support the Rajavan people directly? I mean, donations to Heiva uh, Sora Kurdistan, the Red Crescent, Kurdish Red Crescent, uh, H-E-Y-V-A-S-O-R dot O-R-G. Uh, you can donate through, uh, through PayPal. Um, that will definitely be appreciated. Another thing is naturally there is a lot of outlets that are out there that are theoretically, ideologically contributing to Rojavan model. 
So all the researchers are very welcome on doing research on Rojava and Kurdish people. And also they're very welcome to, to go and see it firsthand, how it's implemented in Rojava. And number three, there is a lot of international volunteers helping with healthcare, helping with the trauma, post-trauma of the people there, helping with the struggle, the fight, anything that people can do in terms of going out there and volunteering. That's probably the third element I can say. But just start with just donating with Heivasor. Do you have any preferred way that people can get in touch with you if they're interested in collaborating with you politically at all? Oh, yes, please. I mean, uh, you can always email us at contact at kurdafh.org, which stands for Kurdish American Foundation of Houston. So it's kurdafh.org. Just go to our website and then uh, just send us an email and we will definitely be seeing, first of all, what kind of help you want to provide. And then we will make sure that you'll be in touch with the right set of people. Excellent. And is there anything I forgot to ask you about that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? I would say that the whole oxymoron of uh, Kurt setting up a very uh, socially just society, but on the other hand, Kurds loving America, that whole oxymoron is a very interesting topic. Before judging anything that's going on in Rojava, I would just say your followers to, uh, to think of how pragmatic sometimes people of Rojava need to be so that they actually survive what's awaiting them in the very near future, which is ethnic cleansing. Dr. Hejar, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time that you spent with me today. And um, yeah, thanks again. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. And, and uh, also we'll see you at the event. Thank you so much for having me over. Galekspas, uh, like we say in Kurdish, and, um, and we also say in Kurdish, all of your followers are on my eyes and on my head, which means they are the crown jewels of American people. Thank you for your support, and thank you for understanding our ideology. Of course. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Folks, I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Dr. Hejar Ansel. If you're in the Houston area on the 22nd and the 23rd, be sure to make it out to Rajava Strong. And if you aren't able to be there, make sure to spread the word online and otherwise. Thanks again to everyone for tuning in and a special thanks to those who support the podcast through Patreon. Remember to like and subscribe and check out our full catalog at nonserbium.media. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.